Charles Haddon Spurgeon died on January the 31st, 1892. He was 57 years old, 10 years older than I am today. I know that's hard to believe. But. It was on a Sunday. And it happened in the town of Menton in the south of France. It was reported that during the three days his body lay in state, that it rested in the Metropolitan Tabernacle, the building that Spurgeon built and had pastured for over 38 years, that 60,000 people came to pay their respect. The English newspapers reported that somewhere around 100,000 mourners lined the streets of London, the cold, wintry, blustery streets of London, as the three-and-a-half-kilometer funeral parade passed through the streets of London from the Metropolitan Tabernacle to West Norwood Funeral Cemetery. Indeed, it seemed as if all London, nay, all England, had gone into mourning at the passing of Spurgeon. Flags were lowered in respect outside Buckingham Palace. Pubs, restaurants, cafes, shops, marketplaces were all closed in a mark of respect for the passing of the old man. Everyone, everyone from the Queen of England to the lowest beggar in the street, everyone seemed to feel the loss of Spurgeon's passing. All this, all of this honor and respect at the passing of a simple Victorian pastor, a Baptist pastor, a, a Reformed Baptist pastor at that, not some honored prince, not some statesman, not some prime minister, the passing of a simple pastor. But really, this man, this pastor, who was to become known as the Prince of Preachers, lived no ordinary life. By the time of his death, he had authored 3,600 sermons. He had published 49 volumes of commentaries, sayings, anecdotes, illustrations, devotions. He published his autobiography, as well as books on prayer, devotions, published magazines, poetries, wrote and published books of hymns. Indeed, today, over a hundred years later, there are more writings of Spurgeon's. There are more books published by Spurgeon than any other Christian author alive or dead. He started 
He founded orphanages for children, first the boys' orphanage and then girls' orphanage, for the street children of London. When we think of an orphanage, perhaps we just think of a home, a place where they live, but it was much more than that. It was, it was a school, it was a university, it was a technical college where the children were taught to read and write. They were given skills that would help them in later life. Later life. They had mothers and fathers there. It wasn't just a waiting place where a person would come and pick up a child. It was a home. Spurgeon started homes for the weakest and uncared for in Victorian society. He supported ministries to the poor. We would call them social programs. Feeding the poor, clothing the poor, building homes for the poor, cleaning the streets for the poor. The streets were full of refuge, dead cats, dead dogs, poo. People just dropped their poo out the windows. It was a disgusting, where they lived was a filthy area. And Spurgeon's church rejuvenated the area. People who, were, who would visit would comment the difference. You knew when you were getting near the, ta- the tabernacle because all of a sudden the streets were clean, there were flowers, the trees were there. Why? Because Spurgeon's people under his direction cause social change. He was personally responsible for the founding, the founding and the funding and the developing of over 69 ministries from their church. 69 different ministries that were actively benefiting people outside their church. Ministry to the elderly. Uh, 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 Street missions. Preaching points, as we would call them. Uh, Gospel halls. Little churches on a Sunday. Satellite churches. All under his personal direction. It's recorded that He often preached up to ten times a week. Think of that. Ten times. I I, I didn't fit. I was like, what? Ten times? That's a lot. But he preached ten different times in ten different places. In a time when they didn't have cars, when it was difficult, they didn't have the modern roads that we have, they didn't have the modern technology that we had, And yet, he would leave London, go preach in Bristol. He would go leave London and go somewhere else and preach, go into the countryside and visit, as he called them, kitchen table churches. Do you know what a kitchen table church is? It's like our midweek meeting. They didn't have a building. They didn't have a pastor. But you had a group of believers who met together, and they met around the kitchen table. And there Spurgeon would meet with them and preach to them and teach them from the Word of God up to ten times a week. As well as his, his 
later instructing in, in the pastor's college, their Bible college later on. It is said in Spurgeon's lifetime that he preached to about 10 million people face to face. This is before the internet. This is before YouTube. This is before radio or TV. This is before any technological advancement. This is just feet on the ground, behind a pulpit, with no speaker systems, preaching up to 10 million people face to face during his lifetime. He, of course, started the Bible college, a non-conformist. For the most part before that, if you were a Baptist or a non-conformist, someone who didn't belong to the state church, it was almost impossible for you to go to university. It was almost impossible for you to get a job with the state or the government. It was almost impossible for you to get any sort of higher education. The majority of men who were in the pulpit were untrained and untaught men. And Spurgeon said, we can't have that. And therefore, they started the pastor's college, training men for the ministry, setting the example for the other nonconformists, the non-state churches at that time. It was a very controversial thing to do. And of course, he was the pastor to the congregation of the Metropolitan Tabernacle, a building who seated comfortably 5,000 people at any one meeting. They had two gatherings on a Sunday. Both were fully attended. Seating was a or 5,000 people. Imagine that. 5,000 people. And you had to get a ticket before you could come to church. You couldn't just turn up five minutes afterwards, ten minutes afterwards, and just saunter in and find a place. There was no place left. Indeed, it was so fully packed that they had standing room tickets. So you could come in here, but you couldn't be guaranteed a seat. They would give you a standing room ticket. So you would go and stand at the side. Every week, morning and evening, there was a thousand people who lined up for a standing room only ticket. There's a story of an American uh, dignitary someone who's important in the American government. He came over and the, the British asked him, so what would you like to do, sir, while you are in England? The first thing he said, I want to hear Spurgeon. I want to hear Spurgeon. They went, and the, the, the English lords who were entertaining him said, I don't know. I don't know if, there, if we'll get there on time. And the American says, what do you mean, get there on time? And he said, well, you'll see. And they took the, the horse and carriage thing, you know, the, they have horses and carriage and a taxi. And as they're approaching, they get within a half a mile, which I have no idea what that is in kilometers, but a good distance from the chapel, from the church building. 
and there are carriages parked all along the road. And people walking, crowds of people going towards, and the, the carriage driver says, oh, I'm sorry, gentlemen, this is as far as we can go. And the American gentleman was saying, so what's going on? What, what's happening? And then he looked and he noticed everyone was carrying a Bible. And they were all on their way to church. And it, he said that it seemed like a heavenly throng. Men, women, and children all carrying a copy of the Scriptures. All heading cheerfully towards the tabernacle. And as they got there, the American gentleman, who was very, very important, thought they, they could just stroll, all in, stroll, stroll in. You know, they could go in. Somebody stopped and said, I'm sorry, sir, do you have a ticket? That, the concept of that is crazy for us. We think, you know, everyone and anyone would be allowed to come into church. So great was the throng that they had to give tickets to keep order so to stop people from sneaking into the chapel. And the, the American, it was explained by the, the Lord who was entertaining the American gentleman. Well, this gentleman's from America and he's come all the way here to hear uh, Pastor Spurgeon preach. And the, 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 the deacon at the door said, I'm sorry, sir. Even the Queen of England couldn't get in tonight without a ticket. And a little old lady and her ward, uh, her, um, the girl who was her, care, she ca- who cared for her and to be her, her, looked after her, I heard what was going on and she said, well, I've heard Pastor Sermon, Mr. Spurman, uh, Spurgeon speak many times, you can take my ticket. And so he received, but it was a, a standing room only ticket, this old lady. So he went in and he said, this American diplomat said it was the most glorious experience he'd ever had in his life, standing an hour and a half through the service. Imagine that. A building for 5,000 seats with a standing room for 1,000, filled twice a week, or twice on a Sunday, as well as throughout the day they had adult Bible study or Sunday school. The Metropolitan Tabernacle was the largest non-conformist Christian building in the world at that time. It was the most influential congregation of that time. And to be honest, I could just fill up my time here with story after story after story of the things that Spurgeon accomplished or were accomplished through his influence. This man, Spurgeon, though, who was he? For being such a famous man, where did he come from? Spurgeon was born to very humble beginnings. He was born in 1834 in Kelvingdon in Essex, a rural community. He was a boy from the country. He wasn't born in a city or a town. He was born in... As you're driving here to this place, you drive through little nameless hamlets. You know, like a couple of houses on the side of the road, and it's supposed to be a village or a town. But you drive through it in a second, and you never think of it ever again. You're there and you're gone. Spurgeon was from one of those kind of communities. The kind of community that you've passed through 
10, 15, 20 times, and you never give it any thought. You'll never stop there. You'll never go there. You just pass through there. And Spurgeon was born in one of those places. He was born into a pastor's family. His father, John Spurgeon, like his father, Charles Spurgeon's grandfather, they were both nonconformist ministers. Again, that meant that they were not part of the state church. They were what we would call free church pastors. They did not hold to the teachings of the Church of England. They were congregationalists, as we call them. Shortly after he was born, Spurgeon was sent to live with his grandparents. We don't know why. At about the age of eight months, he sent to live with his grandparents and his Auntie Anne, who becomes like a surrogate mother to him. And he's there with his grandparents for about six years. He stays with them. And he recounts in his autobiography, it was a wonderful time. His grandparents were very actively involved in his life. His Auntie Anne taught him to read. She, she, he was like a living doll for her. You know, that she just ad- adopted him and became a, as a surrogate mother. And even at his death, when he is so frail and so ill and so dilapidated, you know, he just can't look after himself. And his gout and his sickness is terrible. His auntie Anne at the end cares for him. It's crazy. The connections. It was here at his grandparents' house. They owned a manse, a, a pastor's house, a very, very old house. It was perhaps two, three hundred years old. It, it had always been a nonconformist manse, the house where a pastor lives. You can imagine it, it had like a grass roof, a thatched roof, and white walls, and an overgrown garden. And it was here that Charles Haddon Spurgeon developed his great love for reading and for books, for print, for writing. Charles discovered that in his grandfather's house there was a treasure. He discovered that in one of the bedrooms at the back of the house there was a small door at the back of one of the walls. When I mean a small door, I mean I'm a small man. I'd have to bend down to get in. It was an old door leading to an ancient, dark and dusty Puritan library. The library had been there since the 1600s. We know this because Spurgeon tells that the windows of the library had been blocked up. They had been bricked up or covered up. So the room was in almost perfect darkness. Why had that happened? Well, in 1696, William III passed a window tax on the British people. So if your house had a lot of windows, you had to pay more tax. We'd be in trouble here, wouldn't we? And so, to avoid having to pay tax, 
People covered up their windows. They, they bricked them up. And that's why if you go to England today and you see old houses with one window and then everything else is bricked up, it, it's from that time. In, in order to not have to pay tax, they just bricked up their windows. Ha ha. Ha 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 ha. King William III, you're not getting money from me. So we know that the library itself must have been older than, than 1696 because it had lots of windows in it that were bricked up. Now, this was not some small collection of books. It was not like our tiny book table out there. Joel and I desire that our book table should be twice as big. We're talking it was a pastor's library that had been passed down from pastor to pastor. It was not Charles's grandfather's working library that he had in his pantry office downstairs. This was the place where they kept the books. And they were not like the books that we enjoy today, like our books on our tiny little book table out there. These were volumes. Spurgeon says of them that they were dressed in sheepskins and goatskins. They were leather-bound behemoth of books. Do you remember those who were here that I, when I told the biography of George, no, not George, sorry, of John Bunyan, I brought in my copy, my reproduction of, of Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, and it's about this size, and you open it up, boom, it makes that sound when you open it up, and it, it's got etchings and drawings, and it's just, it's just not text like we have in our books today. They were illustrated with beautiful illustrations. You, you, you understood what was happening in the passage because you looked at the page and you saw Pilgrim with his burden. You saw the lions. You saw the giants. This was one of those kind of libraries. Spurgeon became fascinated. Now, remember what age he is. He's a child. We have lots of children here, and praise God, hallelujah, amen. And they're like li little whirlwinds that just fly across. You know, you, can, you hear them before you see them. Some children more than others. Bless you. And they're always running about. Spurgeon says of himself that he was never one of those kind of children. He was... The, a child who was much more comfortable in a dark library with a giant tome. Even before he could read, he would look at the illustrations and ponder and make up for himself what was happening there. And then he would go to his Auntie Anne and ask a million questions. What's happening there? Who is that? What's he doing? Why is he doing that? Can you explain to me? And in her desperation to be left alone, she taught him to read greatest gift anyone ever gave him. And it was in this library, this treasure vault of knowledge, this ancient back room resource where Spurgeon met the Puritans and the Reformers. In particular, two books. Two books impacted his little young life more than any others of that 
dark and dusty library. Two books that would follow him all the way through his life up until the end. The first was Fox's Book of Martyrs. The reading of that book left him with the unshakable impression of what it costs to be a believer. He would read it again and again throughout his life. It impressed upon his heart the danger, the impression, the evil and wickedness of false religion, of the dangers of popery and superstition. It warned his little soul when he read through those volumes and saw the suffering and the agony and the stand, the heroic stand the people of God have taken throughout the ages time and time. Again, I'm sure you know Fox's Book of Martyrs begins in Rome, the early church, and then comes all the way up into, into England. The second book, of course, was John Bunyan. John Bunyan, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. He loved that book. Indeed, he would go on to read it over a hundred times throughout his life. And if you read Spurgeon's sermons, and I, I love Spurgeon's sermons. I mean, if you don't read them, you can listen to them even better. And every night again, one of John Bunyan's characters wanders through Spurgeon's sermons. He wanders through and then he wanders back out. Spurgeon said they were not just characters of in a book, they were his friends. They were his teachers. They were his companions in life. This book impacted his life and helped him to understand the subtleties of Christian life, the subtleties of religion. And he, he gave thanks for it many times, saying that because of the writings of Bunyan and the illustrations from that book, not the, the drawn ones, but the written illustrations, he would have the insight to be able to deal with the most delicate of situations. It equipped him. You know that there's the old saying, a good man learns from his mistakes and corrects himself. A wise man learns from the mistakes of others and doesn't do them in the first place. Spurgeon had been blessed with the mentality not just to gain knowledge and retain knowledge, but to transfer that knowledge into wisdom and to apply it to life even as a child. And again, while other children are busy at play, running around, getting into all kinds of mischief and noise, Spurgeon would sit and read. And he would learn. And before he could read properly, he went to Auntie Anne. I think that woman must have been, must have been tortured. It shows you the importance, ladies, it shows you the importance of grace and patience with children. It shows you the importance of reading to children. We fathers, are we not neglectful? It shows you the importance of older people in the lives of younger people in church. 
You may not be the parent, but you can be the surrogate parent. You can be the influence that causes a child to go in the right direction and equips that child to receive spiritual instruction, grace and patience. There was something in that library. There was something about that library that got into Spurgeon's blood. He was bitten by the bookworm. And it would change him and shape him forever. That accumulated knowledge and that wisdom that he gained from there would shape the man that he would become for the rest of his life. Indeed, books and writing would forever be a part of Spurgeon's life. Yes, more than just books and writing, it was their subject matter. It was what those books in that library was about. You see, in that ancient puritanical library, in that dark and dusty place, so hidden away for perhaps a hundred years, Spurgeon discovered the story of the Pearl of Great Price, of a treasure long forgotten and hidden from view. It was there in that library Spurgeon discovered the Christ of the Bible. Not that he came to faith, but it was laid upon his heart the impression that Jesus Christ was fully revealed in the Bible. And it was only the Bible that contained the full revelation of Jesus Christ. It was God speaking to man. It was the very words of God. For us, normal people, libraries are usually very quiet places. I go to the library to write because my house is full of children and a wife. And therefore, I don't have an office. Therefore, I must flee to the library to seek peace and quiet. But to be honest, for myself, a library isn't a quiet place. When you love books, oh my goodness. I walk into a library and I am confronted with a great competition of voices, a great calamity. It's like chaos. All these authors and books from the shelves crying out, read me. Come and pay me attention. Learn from me. It's like a colony of screeching birds or baying seals. It's like a zoo. For me, a library is no quiet place. Yet in my mind's eye, I go further still. For when I'm in the library and and I go to the history section because I'm a history nerd, I hear not just their voices, I see somehow in the the eye of my mind, their forms. Behold the form of the writer. There they stand waiting as if somehow their ghost, their spirit, their presence has been captured and caught within the ink and the pages. And there they stand waiting forever. Standing, waiting, waiting, waiting waiting for someone to come, someone to come and pick them up and read them, to listen to their words, to hear their story, to sit at their feet. 
They're waiting for a chance to become living again. And I imagine Spurgeon as a child in this dark and dusty puritanical library. And in that darkness, there he sits. And he doesn't sit alone, but there he sits with the reformers. There he sits with the Puritans. Luther is there with his commentaries and his 95 theses. Calvin is there with his beard and his institutes. We know John Bunyan was there with all of his characters, with all of his stories, with his grace abounding. We know Fox was there with his great train of martyrs. His story of the triumphs. Can you see little Spurgeon sitting and the ghost of John Calvin whispering in his ear? We know the Puritans were there. Baxter. Spurgeon told us that before he turned 14, 13, he knew Baxter, Owen, and Gill. He knew Fuller. He knew all of the the Reformers and the Puritans. He had read their books and retained their knowledge. You see, that library wasn't just full of books. That library was filled with Christendom's greatest teachers. And little Spurgeon sat at their feet and heard their words, retained their knowledge, and gained their wisdom. And in little Spurgeon, they found one who would listen to their voice and learn from them. You see, Spurgeon had been born with we call today a photographic memory. Spurgeon could read something. Spurgeon could read a book and retain it for the rest of his life. And I'm not just saying he could tell you what it was kind about. He could tell you what was said on what page. Where the line was on the page. Later in life, his assistants used to play the game with him. I'm sure you know. They would say, they would, say, they would throw out a, a, a book Spurgeon had a massive 200,000 book library. It was massive. And it was like two stories. And his assistants would say, where's this book? And Spurgeon would say, third shelf, or third row down there, fourth book across, it's right there. Or they would say, this line from this book, where's that? And he would say, it's in that chapter, on that page, in that place there. And they would go, the Lord had blessed him with an exceptional mind and the ability to be able to retain and process that. Remember, a good man learns from his own mistakes and corrects him. A wise man learns from the mistakes of others. Spurgeon was able to learn from others and be able to apply that. He was a very unusual child. Though saying that, his formal education was very, very limited. Even so, for the standard of his day, he went to simple village schools. He only progressed to a certain standard within their system. He never went to a college or a university. He never earned a degree. He was a very unusual child. 
Indeed, Spurgeon's conversion story is probably one of the most widely known conversion stories in Christian history outside the Bible. He was converted at the age of 15. He writes in his autobiography, this, this is him, these are his words of his life before conversion. And I remember he came to faith at 15. 15. I was years and years on the brink of hell. I meant in my own feeling, I was unhappy. I was desponding. I was despairing. I dreamt of hell. My life was full of sorrow and wretchedness and believing that I was lost. Yet, to be honest, outwardly, many considered him a good Christian boy. He prayed daily, religiously. He read his Bible diligently, daily. He would engage in spiritual and religious conversations. Indeed, a year before he came to faith, around the age of 14 or 15, he entered into a an essay, a writing competition. A magazine, a Christian magazine was having a competition for adults, not for children. And the best essay, the best writing example would receive an award. And so Spurgeon, as a 14-year-old boy, entered an essay into this competition. It wasn't a long essay. It was only 295 pages long. It was called Popery Unmasked, and it was a a condemnation of Roman Catholicism. And in it, he quotes the Reformers, he quotes Luther, he demonstrates a perfect grasp of justification by faith. Fourteen years old. When the readers read it, they were thinking, this guy is amazing. Where has this guy been? He just stepped off from nowhere. And the, the judges of the competition, who were all learned men, older guy, gray beards, they, con- they went to congratulate him, and, and they said, is your father home? He said, I preach at this person. He said, we're looking for Charles Haddon Spurgeon. That's me. No, no. The Charles Haddon Spurgeon responsible for writing this? Oh, I wrote that. No, no, you didn't. Yes, I did. And they accused him of plagiarism, actually. They, were, they didn't believe that he would do it. And he was able, of course, because of the photographic memory, to tell them exactly. He then preached it to them almost. And they couldn't... They, they, you win. <laughs> you win. 14, 15 years old. Exceptional. He has a perfect knowledge of the doctrines, yet his heart is lost. He knew all about Christianity. He could tell you all about church government. He knew his Bible better than most ministers of his day, yet in his heart he was dead in his trespasses and sins. He was an outward Christian, but not an inward one. It was on a cold, wet, stormy, wintry Sunday in January the 6th, 1850, when 15-year-old Spurgeon found himself through the providence of God in the town of Colchester. He was 
working as a teacher for a local school while the, 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 the normal teacher was sick. He stepped in and was teaching men older than him. And the village, had, and the village school had a, an outbreak of smallpox. A virus got free. We all know about those kind of things, don't we? And they had a lockdown. Not a new thing. And he had to go find a new place to go and worship. And he didn't know where to go. And his mother suggested that he go to a a chapel on the other side of this village. She said she'd been there and it was very, very good. The pastor spoke very, very well. And on this particular morning, Spurgeon had awakened with a great burden in his soul. He hadn't slept well at all. He was troubled greatly by his sin. And he was seeking someone to help him over the fear of death. And he's on his way to this chapel on the other side of town, and a snowstorm happened. Now, this wasn't just any snowstorm. This was the great and terrible snowstorm of 1850. More snow fell in this particular week than the entire year all put together. It was the mother of all snowstorms. It was a beast. And in the providence of God, while it's going on, our little Charles Spurgeon is trying to get to church. He has a need. No one's making him, but he's being called by God. He's being summoned. He's being pulled. And he's on his way. We know the story that as the snow gets so bad and so terrible... He decides that he cannot go any further. The snow is deep. The sleet is freezing him. And so he turns down an alleyway. And there at the bottom of the alleyway is a a simple Methodist church, a primitive Methodist church. Uh, Not a really respectable kind of church. Not, Not the kind of church that you would go to to hear good doctrine preached. But it was okay, and it was close by, and he went in. And history tells us that there were no more than 12 people, 12, perhaps 15. Spurgeon said, maybe 12 at the most. And because of the snowstorm, the minister who was supposed to come and preach could not make it. He was stuck in the snow. And so as Spurgeon entered the building and took off his coat and went to sit down, a young man got up into the pulpit. A thin, Spurgeon says, a a thin-looking man, a shoemaker or a tailor. Spurgeon himself was never to know anything about this man. The young man got up into the pulpit and announced his text. It was from Isaiah 45, verse 22. Look, look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. Spurgeon says this. He had not much to say, thank God, for all that compelled him to keep on repeating his text. And here there was nothing needed by me any rate, except his text. 
I remember how he said, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now, looking don't take much effort or deal much pain. It ain't lifting your finger or your foot. It's just, look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, yet you can look. A child can look. One who's almost an idiot can look. However weak, however poor a man may be, he can look. And if he looks, it is by that he shall live. He went on in his broad Essex, Essex accent, Many on ye are looking unto yourselves, but ain't no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some say, look to God the Father. No, look to Him by and by. It is Christ that it speaks. I am in a garden in agony, pouring out my soul unto death. I am on a tree dying for sinners. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend into heaven. Look unto me. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, you poor sinner. Look. Look unto me. Look unto me. Some of you say, we must wait for the Spirit's work. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look to Christ. Look unto Him. Look unto me. The preacher managed to spin out that for ten minutes and then running out of anything else to say, looked to his congregation and picked Spurgeon. Young man! You look very miserable, he said. Well, surgeon said, I, I did look miserable, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit about my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow, struck right home. And the preacher went on, and you will always be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death if you do not obey my text. But if you can obey now, this moment you will be saved. And then he shouted at the top of his voice, as I think only a primitive Methodist can, Young man, look to Jesus! Look! 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 You have nothing to do but look unto Jesus. And I did look. I saw at once the way of salvation. I did not know what else he said. I did not take notice of it. So I was, I was so possessed with that one thought, like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up. The people only looked on and were healed. And so was I. I had been waiting to do 50 things but when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I could have looked and looked until my eyes 
could look away no more. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And that moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them, those primitive Methodists, of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which alone looks to Him. Oh, that someone had told me this before. Trust Christ and you shall be saved. Later, Spurgeon said, I thank God that I owe my conversion to Christ to an unknown person who certainly was no minister in the ordinary acceptance of the term, but who could say this, look, look unto Christ and all you and be saved all you ends of the earth. Soon after his conversion, about three weeks, Spurgeon breaks with the tradition of his family who were congregational ministers who were in the tradition of baptizing infants. Spurgeon broke away from that. And he joins the local Baptist congregation and allows himself to be baptized in a nearby river. He tells us that he came to the conviction of believers' baptism when a Church of England minister challenged him to find the, doc, or find the, the Bible verses that confirmed infant baptism. The, the minister was trying to win him to, uh, a, in a conversation about infant baptism. And Charles Spurgeon, the child, scarred the Scriptures went through them to find out. And he said, I find no Scriptures concerning them, but the ones I did convicted me, challenged me, and compelled me to obey. He chose Christ over his family, his connections, and his history. For him, obedience to Christ and loyalty to Christ were premium. You see, when Spurgeon became a Christian, he didn't just become a Christian. He became Christ's man. He became a bond servant to Christ. He owed Jesus everything. And Jesus was everything to him. And he would hold nothing back, but would give everything, his everything, to his marvelous and wonderful Lord. Now, beloved, I must apologize because I have to skip over so much of Spurgeon's life. In preparing this, I mistakenly prepared five messages instead of one. And now I have to jump on and move on. So bear with me. We'll look at the mountaintops experiences of his life so that we can get to the end. Spurgeon's natural talents were quickly noticed by the pastor of the local Baptist church. And that local Baptist pastor tricked Spurgeon into preaching his first message. Spurgeon was sent to support a young man. The pastor said, can you go and support this young man as he's preaching? But he'd also told the other young man, can you go and support Spurgeon as he's preaching? And the two on a Sunday morning were on their way to the village to support each other preaching. 
And Spurgeon said to his friend, So what is your text on, brother? Tell me about your sermon. And the young man almost fainted when bright, bright white, you know, was like, Beloved, I, I am not here to preach. I am here to support you in your preaching. And Spurgeon went, She said, What? I said, What? I have nothing prepared. And the man said, I have nothing prepared. And they kind of looked at each other. And the, Spurgeon's friend said, Well, then they shall have nothing because I'm not preaching. And he said, Dear Brother Spurgeon, could you not like share with them your, your, your uh, Sunday school message from last week? And Spurgeon said, Brother, speak not to me again, for I must think deeply on what I shall say. And there and then he got there. They thanked him for coming. He preached his first message, and the Lord blessed it. And soon he was pastoring as a child of 17, child, young man of 17. He was pastoring a small church, a local Baptist congregation just outside Cambridge. And while he was there, the congregation swelled to several hundred people. This small, everybody knows how small Spurgeon was. He was 165 centimeters tall. And even as a young man, he was very heavy set. Again, he was no athlete. He was more a mathlete. He was a, a, a nerd. But the Lord had blessed him with two, two special gifts. First, an amazing mind. And the second, a voice that could shake the mountains. In Ireland, we say it's the smallest frog that has the biggest croak. Okay, you know, little men, big voices. I don't know if it's true. The Lord blessed his efforts. So by 17, he's, he's pastoring in Water Beach, small congregation outside Cambridge. The Lord blesses his efforts. The congregation swells, and the rumor of him spreads. So much so that by when he's 19 years old in 1854, he is invited by the church of New Park Street, one of the most famous churches in England. It's one of those institutional churches. It's a massive church. The building at least. The congregation was waning. It was around 200 people. But the building seated so many more. And they invited Spurgeon to come and speak. And Spurgeon tells in his autobiography, I thought it was a mistake. I thought it was for a different Spurgeon down the street. And he said, well, you'll find him down there. And the messenger had to say to Spurgeon, no, sir, it's for you. And Spurgeon said, no, it can't be. I, I, I'm just a child. No, sir, it's for you. And he turns up and he preaches. And from the moment he preaches, the congregation goes into shock and begins to celebrate. The, the rumor of him spreads. So in the morning, there was only perhaps 200 people attending in this big old Gothic church. When he came to preach in the evening, the building was filled. And he preached the sermon. And the Spirit of God moved in the hearts of people. People who had become cold and tired in their faith. And all of a sudden, Spurgeon, who preached Christ and the Bible... We talked about Bunyan being a bibliophile. You know, the, you, you prick him and he bleeds the Bible. This, uh, Spurgeon said this of Bunyan. It was true of Spurgeon. Bible came out of old truths, the old way. 
salvation. He preached Christ. And it was a revelation and a shock to these people. Because this kind of preaching hadn't been heard in London for decades. And here was this young man preaching these forgotten truths. Almost immediately, the elders, the deacons, the, the leaders of the church get together and said, we need this young man. We, we, we have to do all that we can get. And so they proposition him immediately. Come and be our pastor. And he has long conversations with his father. He doesn't want to give up the, the, the congregation that he's been preaching, just uh, pastoring just outside Cambridge. But in the end, he is convinced and he sees that it's the will of God and he moves to this congregation. In 1856, he marries a young lady from the congregation, Susanna Thompson. Within the year, they have twin sons, Charles and Thomas. God blesses his ministry immediately. There is an immediate response to his preaching. Souls are being won. Revival is breaking out among the Christians. People are starting to come back to church and they're bringing their Bible. There is enthusiasm and enthusiasm and passion once again among the people of God for Christ and for the things of Christ. The Bible once again is being lifted up as God's book. Revival begins to flow. So much so that the, the church swells in numbers and the building gets too small and they have a building project and, and they must move out of the building that they're in and they go and preach and have their meetings in a, a, the Exeter Hall. It's a meeting place, a, a, a theater. It was very scandalous that they would have it there. While Spurgeon is experiencing tremendous success spiritually, the newspapers and the other religious communities are condemning him. They are mocking the way he dresses. They are mocking the way he looks. Remember, he's small and slightly round. His hair is in the old-fashioned style for like 100 years ago. And he speaks with a funny accent. He doesn't preach in the conventional way of preaching. He speaks in such a way as the ordinary man hears and understands and is captured, and it speaks to them. And it was deeply shocking and offensive to the upper classes that Spurgeon would be so, lack so much formality. We're told that in 1856, that he's, when he was preaching in the Surrey Gardens, uh, uh, a theater, and the, the building was full to capacity. You imagine a, mu a movie theater or a, a, a play, a theater where they have plays, and they have the, the whole audience through congregation before them, and then they have balconies. A series of balconies above. And behind them, there's the stairs to go up the balconies. While Spurgeon ascended the platform and began to speak, some saboteurs were in the back, and they began to cry, Fire! Fire! The balconies are falling! They're collapsing! Run for your life! And it caused a panic among the people. Now, the, 
The congregation was so big and Spurgeon was so far forward, he couldn't see what was happening in the back. He didn't know what was happening. And the people were fleeing the balconies and coming down the staircases and a stampede happened. And people were injured and people were crushed and seven people died. Spurgeon tried to gain control. He, he commanded people, in the name of Jesus, please, please, Leave orderly, ordinary, in an orderly fashion. But no, nobody listened to him. And then when it was told to him that seven people had passed as the crowds were stampeding for the exits, he fainted and was unconscious for 48 hours. His friends had to carry him out. They had to rush him out through a back door. So terrible was the experience that it haunted him all the days of his life. He carried the guilt of that. He himself was not guilty of anything. But he carried the guilt. That, that burden would follow him. In 1861, they built the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Again, the largest Christian building that built at that time. Seating comfortably, 5,000 with standing room for 1,000, so 6,000 people every meeting. They built it debt-free. They opened the doors and they didn't owe a penny when they, built, when they opened the doors. In 16, or 1864, Spurgeon preached perhaps one of the most powerful messages that he ever preached. And I have to be really careful because I love this story and I will go on forever and you'll all be bored and I'm terribly sorry. Spurgeon preached a sermon that changed the world. Imagine preaching one message that would transform and change the world. That it would put to death in his time, the power of the state church over the minds and the hearts of the public. Spurgeon preached the message on baptismal regeneration against the practice of believing that when a priest put water on a baby, that the baby was born again. He preached that message. Indeed, he knew that it was going to be controversial. He contacted his publishers and his the distributors, and he told them, I think I'm about to destroy my, my uh, audience. Nobody's going to want to buy me anymore. No one's ever going to want to read my stuff. He said, you might, you might want to be careful. And he preached this sermon. Within three weeks, it seemed as if the world had gone mad. The writer of the biography that I read said that they received over 150 uh, responses, like public responses, magazines from all over the world, writing in response, condemning Spurgeon, condemning the sermon, disproving the sermon. Spurgeon would go on to preach two other messages in response why we do not bring children to the baptismal font, why we bring them to Jesus. And another one, the baptismal font weighed against Scripture, something like this. 
One of Spurgeon's dear friends, a very famous preacher of that time, a man called Dr. Campbell, said this of that message. Never, Dr. Campbell said, never has the error of baptismal regeneration been exhibited so vividly in the public eye. And never has it been pressed home with such on this pressed home so hard upon the clerical conscience with so with a force so thrilling resistlessness gosh my English is terrible today and terrible it was a shocking message that broke the back of the church of england in their day imagine that after that numbers of the church of england began to go down and go down Remember Spurgeon warned his publicist that his num printing numbers might dip down? This sermon sold in its first edition over a quarter of a million copies in its first edition. This isn't a day before the internet. This isn't a day before advertising on TV. 250,000 copies of this little sermon. I think it's like 17 pages long. It takes just over an hour to read. In its first edition, sold out. I have to be very careful because I can get carried away in, that, in this right place. Imagine the influence. Beloved, imagine you preached a sermon that changed Finland forever. That broke the back of nominal religion. That changed the way the ordinary person leads their life. That they don't just come unthinkingly and offer their children up to be baptized. But they think and they stop and they say, well, does the Bible require that? And there is a change made in the culture. If you have the chance, read that sermon. It is thrilling. I really enjoy it. In 65, 1865, Spurgeon starts his magazine, The Sword in the Trowel. In 68, his wife becomes an invalid. We don't know why. She's housebound for the rest of her life. She cannot leave the house. She is bedridden or must travel in a wheelchair. In 74, Spurgeon baptizes both of his sons. And then we jump over a long gap where lots of interesting things happen, and we go directly to 1887. 1887 is a year that will live in infamy. 1887 is the beginning of the end for Spurgeon. It's where he enters into the last great conflict of his life. In Ian Murray's book, which is on the, the bookshelf, our little bookstop thing over there, the Forgotten Spurgeon. Ian Murray talks about this. It's a fantastic book, The Forgotten Spurgeon. It's over there. Illustrating this controversy that again would spark and flame over the entire world at that time. And would leave Spurgeon standing alone with just a handful of supporters. In 1887, Spurgeon was at the height of his popularity. 
You could buy little Spurgeon bobblehead statues. You could buy Spurgeon mugs. You could buy Spurgeon t-shirts. I don't know if they had t-shirts, but I'm sure if they did, they, you would be able to buy Spurgeon t-shirts. Everybody was rocking the Spurgeon beard and the Spurgeon flick. Spurgeon was cool. He was well-respected. Everywhere he went, any conference that they had, Spurgeon was one of the men who was speaking. Not that he sought fame or notoriety. He would rather that the younger men give it a chance, but because he was such a respected figure, they were continually. And then 1887 happens. In that year, a man called Robert Schindler, one of Spurgeon's assistants, published an article in their magazine, The Sword and the Trowel. And the article was called The Downgrade. Means the sinking down. Means the being reduced. We start up high, and then as time goes on, we sink down. There's a slowing down. And in that article, Robert Schindler traced the historical development of several non-conformist churches, like the Presbyterian, the Congregationalist, and the Methodist. And he showed from their history, their departure from sound, the soundness of doctrine into various hues, different shades of heresy. Now, he wasn't doing this just to point the finger at other non-conformist churches. He was doing it to demonstrate to his own denomination. This is the danger from moving away, of moving away from biblical truth. We see it in history. It's happened here. It happened there. And if we continue along the path, it will happen to us. See, there, there had been a tremendous shift in the late 60s. 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, German higher criticism had invaded England. American post-Civil War, American Christianity had come over from the States with a much more casual way of doing things, a, a, a lesser view. Phineism, as it's, as it's called, Phineism, working on people's feelings, the Bible's too hard for people to understand. Therefore, it's better if we approach them by their feelings. A man must feel his sin. And Spurgeon and his group of fellow workers were opposed to this. But by 1887, the slow rot had got really bad. Things were really bad and they were beginning to be noticed. Pastors were now beginning to doubt the deity of Jesus Christ, the person, the nature, and the work of Jesus. There were slurs made, suggestions, accusations, and denials of the atonement, of penal substitutionary atonement, of the death of Jesus. They, they called it divine child abuse. There was a move away from the gospel. There was an attack on the inerrancy and the sufficiency of Scripture. It was very modern and very hip to address 
the books of uh, the five books of the Pentateuch, um, the five books at the beginning of the Bible, books of Moses. Thank you. As non-literal, Darwinism had impacted the seminaries, and Darwinism was beginning to be taught in Bible college. Evolution was being accepted by the ministers and promoted from the pulpit. Adam was now a question mark. We don't really know if Adam was a real person. The Bible tells us was, but science tells us. Hmm. And there was an undermining and a, a questioning and the feeding of doubt from the pulpit to the pew. And all of a sudden, believers were being moved from biblical truth to moral truth. That we are to be good people. Benedict spoke a little on this, of how the church throughout all ages faces attack. How the church throughout all ages is continually under threat of being infiltrated by wicked men, by the vicious wolves. And Spurgeon and his companions recognized that that was happening in their own denomination. So when Robert Schindler wrote this history, he was pointing out that which has happened is happening. Because we know that by studying history, it helps us to understand the present. And it enables us to be able to predict what will happen in the future. We know that old maxim, he who does not know the past is doomed to repeat it. These men were crying out the warning. They were sounding the trumpet. They named no names. They spoke to no one. They didn't say, well, this guy here is doing it. They were giving a general alarm, calling to, for a general repentance and turning away. And behind the scenes, Spurgeon was calling for a, a united understanding, a, a, a united commitment to the fundamentals of the faith. Indeed, they started a party called the Fundamentalists. That's where we get the whole idea of fundamentalists. Those American fundamentalists. I'm a fundamentalist. I'm an Irishman. It was people who were committed to the fundamentals of the gospel. To the fundamentals of the Bible. And Spurgeon said, we must at least have a common creed that acknowledges the fundamentals of the faith. We cannot have men who take Christ, take away His atonement, reduce it simply to Moral laws, advice, funny stories, experiences. It is the faith we stand for. They were mocked terribly. It seemed as if all the seminaries, all the leading men, all the younger men, who were in iron positions of power, they reacted very angrily against this article. 
There was a tremendous blowback. If you know something about someone, you should just tell it. Who are these people? Name names. Point the finger. Show us your evidence. Yet Spurgeon looking to maintain unity within the union, he had spoken to the elders, the leaders of the Baptist Union, and they pleaded with him not to cause a split. They begged him for the sake of the unity within the union. Don't name names. Don't point the fingers. It'll cause a split. So Spurgeon battled long and hard to try and win the leaders over, to try and convince those who were erring. The difficulty was when they met with Spurgeon, they said, yes, yes, Mr. Spurgeon, we totally agree with what you're saying. Yes, yes, we see exactly what you you mean. Oh, yes, yes, Mr. Spurgeon. And as soon as Spurgeon left the room, they plotted and they schemed and they cowardly submitted and they turned aside. Robert Schindler then produced a second and a third article throughout the same year to try and speak plainer and clearer and to draw more attention. The newspapers were now involved and there was the the whiff, the scent of of scandal in the air. The Baptist Union tried to do damage control. And they began to say, well, you know, he's not doing very well, Spurgeon. From being 2006, I meant to say, 1886, Spurgeon at the height of his popularity, by mid-1887, Spurgeon is now public enemy number one. They are now conspiring against him, insinuating that he's losing his, his amazing intellect, that he's a bigot, that this is just a Calvinist against our meaning. He's trying to make everybody Calvinist. Spurgeon kept saying, no, it's not about that. It's about Christ. You're denying Christ. You're reducing Jesus to nothing. You're, we're losing the faith. But they would not listen. They just kept undermining his integrity and undermining, kept snipping off here, snipping off there. And, and all of Spurgeon's supporters and friends, or the great many of them, out of fear of being tainted by this controversy, they stepped back and left Spurgeon and his small group of friends alone. Indeed, by the end, the Metropolitan Tabernacle stood alone in this controversy, and very few other denominations rallied round. It was only individuals from certain churches, but not the churches. Someone once, oh, I'll read, I'll read this quote. Spurgeon said of this time, I have often admired Martin Luther and wondered at his composure in so far, or in a far inferior manner, I have been called to stand in the position of Martin Luther. And I have been made the butt of slander and the mark of laughter and of scorn. But it has not broken my spirit yet, and nor will it. But this, for I beg to inform, but for this I beg to inform all those who choose to slander me 
and to speak ill of me, that they are very welcome to do so until they are tired of it. For my motto, my creed is silo no lie. I yield to no one. Such was the heart of Spurgeon. Because Spurgeon understood that this was not simply a, a, a difference of opinion. I, I love one of the... Spurgeon, in the end, in the writings of the Sword and Trial, after he has retired or, or resigned from the Baptist Union, the Baptist Union promised Spurgeon that they would deal with the matter, that at their yearly conference... They would address the matter from the pulpit and they would, it, they, it would be put to, 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 to bed. There would no, no, be no more conversation about it. When the conference came around, everybody was talking about it, but there was silence from the pulpit. None of the leaders spoke about it. Nobody addressed it. So the conference came and went and nothing was done. And the errorists, those people spreading error within the Baptist Union, took it as a sign that they had the freedom to carry on and got from bad to worse. My wife is telling me I have to stop. And, uh, and Spurgeon resigned. Spurgeon resigned. And doing so, it caused great scandal within the union. Now, beloved, you and I, in closing, because my wife is telling me to stop, in closing, let me say this. You and I need not fear any dying greed. You and I will never experience a dying greed. Because, beloved, we are in the dying greed. There has never been an upgrade since Spurgeon's time. All of us come from churches that not necessarily embrace the doctrines of the dying greed, but certainly embrace the practice of the dying greed. They reduced the sermons to three funny stories and a passionate ending. They removed the Bible from the church. They made it child-friendly, idiot-friendly sermons. Bible light. They increased the music, the worship. They changed the church from being a place of faith doctrine of worship of the Almighty God, of the exaltation of our Lord Jesus Christ, to a place of entertainment, of worldliness, of personal satisfaction. We come to church to me made feel good. Did you enjoy church tonight? I, I really enjoyed it. I love the singing. It's great. Beloved, we do not know what it is to be in a time of revival, to be in a time of the up Great. But you and I, beloved, we are as the children of Israel returning from exile. We are like those who have come from Babylon and are returning to Israel, to Jerusalem. We are those returning to the spiritual Jerusalem. It is upon us the responsibility and the duty to rebuild that spiritual Jerusalem, to rebuild that spiritual temple. We have been commanded to contend earnestly for the faith, have we not? It says in Jude 3 and 4 that we are to contend earnestly because certain men have sneaked in. They've crept in unaware and they have perverted the gospel, the faith. 
Beloved, we have been commanded. You see, Spurgeon, he understood that if the men of his generation didn't stand fast, they wouldn't stand at all. But now the baton has been passed to you and to me. Now the responsibility lies upon our shoulders. Shall we continue in the way? We call this conference Reformation Conference. Not because we want to reform denominations. Not because we want to reform the Free Church or the Lutheran Church, the State Church. Because we desire that all Christians should be in a state of continual reformation. Going from glory unto glory unto glory. That you in yourself are continually reforming that you might experience the blessing and the fullness of God, that you might see Christ and know Him in His fullness, that the gospel might be preached among us, that our children might grow up under the preaching of the gospel. Our churches are barren lands. Truly there is a famine in the land, not of bread or water, but of the Word of God. But this, beloved, is our time. We may not be Spurgeon, may not be good-looking like him. We might not have his gifts or abilities. But, beloved, we have Christ. And greater is he who is with us than he who is in the world. Stand fast in your faith. If we must learn from Spurgeon, let it be this. It is not how you start a race that is important. It is how you finish a race that is important. One might say of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he persevered until the end. Until the end of his life, he remained Christ's man, unexcusably. Whose man, woman, are you? Do you love this world and the things of this world? Are you moved by the things of this world? Or do you stand fast in the truth of Scripture, in the revelation of Jesus Christ? Spurgeon himself said, Beloved, this is not a battle for opinion, for theory, but a battle for the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let us stand fast. Let us recover. Let us reclaim. Let us continue in the way. Let us go on from here, from glory to glory, lifting up the Lord Jesus Christ that we might persevere until the end. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness, your mercy, is loved for us as always. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us. We desire, Lord, to glorify you and to honor you in this world. Yes, Lord, we know we lack the gifts and the skills and the abilities to do those things that others have done. But Lord, you have predestined good works for us to do in our lifetime. Lord, there are things, there are challenges, there are wars to fight and battles to win. Lord, for us, help us, O oh God, not to be among those who just talk, talk, but Lord, who live the life, who walk the walk. Oh Lord Jesus, we pray, be exalted among us. Lord, be exalted in our lives. Lord, help us to be continually reforming and being committed unto yourself. Oh God, that we might lift up the true and real gospel. That we might lift him up from this world. That we might say, look, look unto Jesus and be saved, all ye ends of the earth. Lord, we ask this for your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' precious name.
Amen.